You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, I'm vaccinated. I've been vaccinated since March. That's when I got the one-shot J&J vaccine. But I recently got a second shot last Thursday, a booster, which I got because I was concerned because every single story I read about the rapidly spreading Delta variant said you had nothing to worry about if you'd already been vaccinated. But weirdly, none of those stories for weeks and weeks mentioned the J&J vaccine, only Moderna and Pfizer. If you got the Moderna or Pfizer vaccines, nothing to worry about, dot, dot, dot. I can be a bit of a hypochondriac, I know. I also know that all hypochondriacs are vindicated at some point. So with my doctors okay, I got a booster shot. I got the Moderna. The next day, Friday morning, a million stories came out heralding a new study showing that the J&J vaccine was effective against the Delta variant too. I felt bad. My booster shot wasn't going to get sent to some place where it was more desperately needed if I passed. But still, I felt guilty. I felt bad. And later that night, I started to feel worse. I got hit pretty hard with the side effects. Better than dying of COVID, and 99.2% of all recent U.S. COVID deaths are among unvaccinated people. So I will take the side effects, thank you. I didn't get out of bed until pretty late in the day on July 4th, Sunday. The date Joe Biden set a goal for 70% of Americans to have gotten at least their first shot. At 70%, we could safely open the country back up. We sadly didn't hit that goal. We're at 66.8% of Americans over the age of 18 having gotten at least one shot. So close. But it's going to take us some time to get the rest of the way there. Because, well, because fucking Republicans, almost all blue states, states that voted for Biden, are already at 70% or higher. We're at 75% in California and Washington, 70% in Oregon. Vermont leads the blue state pro-science, pro-life pack at 85%. And the red states? Mississippi, Louisiana, Wyoming, Alabama, Tennessee, West Virginia, Idaho, Arkansas. Basically, name a red state and it's nowhere near 70%. Most below 60%. Some below 50%. Looking at you, Miss of fucking Zippy. After reading about how J&J protects you from the Delta variant and how I didn't need to put myself through another round of horrible side effects... I read about all the unvaccinated Trump supporters pouring into Branson, Missouri, a state that is only 55% vaccinated, which has public health officials tearing their hair out. COVID cases have more than doubled in the last two weeks in Missouri and hospitalizations up 20%. The more infectious Delta variant running rampant in Missouri right now and every unvaccinated asshole pouring into the Osmond Family Theater in Branson Moe for the Darwin and Maurice show gives the virus another chance to mutate into something that can defeat the vaccines we've got and turn the clock back to April of 2020. Maybe they think that'll make Trump president again. Missouri, I'm sorry, Missouri, I'm just going to harp on you. Missouri, three weeks ago, Missouri's fucking Republican governor signed into law a bill that bans proof of vaccination requirements, and restricted local health authorities from responding to pandemics at all. And now that same governor, three weeks later, three weeks after signing that bill, is asking the Biden administration to send help for their surge of new infections. 
And Biden should send help. And Biden will because he's not fucking Trump. He's not going to do to red states what Trump did to Puerto Rico after the hurricane or California after the wildfires. But man, federal support for red states should come with strings. Like federal money for highways comes with strings. Make vaccinations, I don't know, mandatory if you want to go inside. If you want to stay home, stay home. You want to go inside any place else, inside a cruise ship, a theater, a restaurant, a school, you want to see Donnie and Marie live, you got to get a shot and bring proof of vaccination. Zooming out for a second. What's really going on here? Why they're not getting vaccinated in red states? Why Tucker Carlson and Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson are out there encouraging people, their people, not to get shots. And you know those two motherfuckers are vaccinated. It's just about denying Joe Biden a win. They don't care how many people they have to kill, including red state Americans, to deny Joe Biden a win. Just like they don't care how many people bridge collapses kill in red state America. Gotta deny Biden a win on infrastructure, too. The Republican base, the Trumpers, I don't think they're that stupid. They know Tucker is vaccinated and Trump and Ron Johnson. They know COVID, like climate change, is real. They know vaccines work. They're risking their own lives and the lives of their children and the lives of every person on the planet to own the libs. A new and deadlier variant could emerge from the grand country buffet in Branson at any moment, and they don't care. They kind of want it. What a moment in history. It's like sharing a country with 74 million Neros, 74 million Hitlers in the bunker at the end. They're willing to burn it all down if they can't have it all their way. If they were only going to take themselves out, I wouldn't care. I mean, uh, I'm a liberal. I'm a progressive. I'd care. Of course, I'd care. I can't help but caring. But if their actions weren't endangering the whole world, only themselves, maybe I could find a way to care less. All right, coming up on the show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's on the micro-free Savage Lovecast and on the Magnum Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Dr. Paul Pottinger joins me to talk about MRSA, Savage Lovecast Magnum, twice as much show, more questions, more guests, no ads, and special bonus content for subscribers. Subscribe at savagelovecast.com. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I am a 32-year-old cis female that newly realized I am bisexual. I have an emerging from quarantine success story for you. P.S. Everyone involved in this story is fully vaccinated. My boyfriend and I have been dating about a year and a half, and although we have been essentially monogamous, we have discussed and fantasized about opening up our relationship, likely starting with a threesome with another woman. I have fantasized about women and made out with a girl at a bar once, but otherwise I had not have not ever been with a woman, and I wasn't sure if I was truly bisexual or just liked the idea of it. Anyway, we've been waiting for the right opportunity for a threesome, which is hard during a pandemic, and enjoyed fantasizing about one until it happened last weekend, when a girl that my boyfriend hooked up with, in a threesome I might add, right before he met me, hit him up eagerly suggesting they hook up that night. He came home very excited and asked if he should reply, suggesting the three of us go out and hook up. She was all for it. We got drinks and went back to our place. It was an amazing time. Her and I started making out in the car. We all quickly got naked once back at the house. Her and I both sucked on my boyfriend's cock together. She was playing with and sucking on my tits while he was fucking her. 
He was fucking me while I was eating her pussy. We were eating each other's pussies while he was fucking her. We all came at different times and he came on both of our faces at the end. I feel like a whole new world has opened up for me and my boyfriend's pretty excited about it too. And needless to say, I'm a lot gayer than I thought. Cocks got sucked, tits got played with, pussies got eaten, you got fucked, she got fucked. Everything happened to everything except listening to call. I couldn't help but think about those three poor, sad, neglected buttholes. The three of you got to get back together and eat some ass and fuck some ass. And I think you two should tag team him. You two should fuck his ass. But otherwise, a terrific sex success story. Thank you for calling. Thank you for sharing. We like to start each week's show with a success story. If you've got a good one, give us a call, share it, and we might start next week's Lovecast with your success story. Hi, Dan. So there's this guy that is an acquaintance of mine, not a close friend, but an acquaintance, loves to post naked pictures of himself on like Instagram. They often get flagged and removed because his dick is showing. Um, He's always talking about how people need to get comfortable with nudity and how the naked human body is not offensive. And like, I agree with that. Um, I do. I don't think I'm a prude, but I also, I don't know, something about it feels kind of like non-consensual. Like, I love dicks, but I'd like to consent to what dicks I'm seeing. He also posted this, like, long rant on Facebook going into, like, a lot of detail about orgasms, his orgasms. And I don't know, it just feels inappropriate, but is it? Am I just a prude? Because I don't think that I am, but something about it just really strikes me as like inappropriate and um, again, kind of like non-consensual. I couldn't say whether you're a prude or not. Not enough facts and evidence to determine whether you're a prude or not. But you're not helpless. If you don't like the shit that this guy is posting to Instagram, if you think that his rationalizations for why he posts what he does to Instagram are insincere, If you don't like the stuff that he posts to Facebook, on the fuck follow him on Instagram and Facebook. You are consenting in a way to seeing the shit that he tosses up on his social media when you follow him on social media. If he's abusing Instagram to share dick pics far and wide with people who may not want to see his dick pics or didn't realize that they were signing up for dick pics when they first followed him, unfucking follow him. You don't have to continue to follow him after the first, second, third, fourth, 50th, 60th, 90th dick pic pops up onto your phone. And if you don't like the shit he posts on Facebook, unfollow him. He's an acquaintance. He's not a close friend. You don't even have to have a conversation with him about why you've unfollowed him. He's highly likely to even notice that you've unfollowed him. So yeah, I think it's highly likely that he's putting dick pics on Instagram because he likes the idea that people out there are seeing his dick. And then he argues that this is about celebrating the human body. There may be a lot of exhibitionists out there who are flying under the body positivity radar. You aren't obligated to follow them. I'm not obligated to follow them. He's not entitled to your eyes. So take your eyes off the content that he is creating. Unfucking follow the exhibitionist. Hi, Dan. I have a question about cleaning out before anal play. I have one of those toilet bidet attachments and I've been using it to clean out. Uh, I shoot the jet of water up my butt and I find it really convenient and refreshing. But I'm wondering 
if this is a safe and healthy way to use that attachment or if I should use an enema kit instead. Dr. Evan Goldstein from Bespoke Surgical was on the show a few weeks ago. And we talked about the fact that most people who do anal play these days, it seems, clean out. They douche before anal play. And the doctor, although he sells a line of douche products, doesn't think that that's necessary. He sells a line because a lot of people are more comfortable with anal play. After douching, people shouldn't use commercial or chemical douches for that. Better to use douche bulbs, or the safe products that Dr. Evan Goldstein makes available as an alternative if someone's going to douche. But a little water in the rectum, a douche bulb, not an enema kit. You're not trying to clean yourself out. The poop up in your digestive tract until you're about to have a bowel movement is usually pretty high up. It moves down into the rectum right before you have a bowel movement. Unless you're deep fisting, the only part of your ass that's really in play during Anal sex, or most anal play with most anal toys, is going to be the rectum. So a small douche bulb, a small amount of water introduced into the rectum that then you expel is going to leave you clean enough for anal. If you're using the attachment on a bidet, like a tushy bidet, longtime advertiser, great product, have one myself, use it all the time, it's unlikely that you're filling your rectum with water unless you have good control and you can open your sphincter and allow the water to shoot up into your rectum. But if you are able to do that, that's just douching and that sounds fine. If you aren't able to do that, what you're most likely doing with your tushy is just cleaning off your asshole, not cleaning out your butt. Whichever it is, cleaning off or cleaning out, this is safe. It also, if you have a healthy diet, you get a lot of fluids that aren't just coffee and Coca-Cola or Diet Coke, and there's a lot of fiber in your diet, and when you have a good bowel movement, you're empty, it could be unnecessary for you to douche like this. Necessary, of course, and courteous to make sure your ass is squeaky clean before anal play. But if you have good, regular bowel movements, the inside of your ass is probably safe enough for anal play without douching. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old female from the Midwest, and I've been dating the guy for three years. We recently moved in together. He does have a history of drug use. He says it's recreational, and we have done drugs together. And when we have done coke together, he just gets really honest and started throughout the three years, piece by piece, telling me his history. So he was abused at three years old. He would hook up with guys in high school. He would go on Craigslist and solicit sex for money, he said. He cross-dresses and he has a fantasy of cuckolding, which we have tried with a friend and we did not go about the threesome right at all. So we kind of took, it it was not a good experience. So we talked through it and figured out we're not going to do that for a bit. So in the three years, we fight a lot about drugs and smoking and binge drinking. And it always ends with, okay, I'll stop. Our most recent blowout was this past weekend, and I walked downstairs, and he was doing coke in women's lingerie with the guy that we had a threesome with. And I told him we were done. I was mostly upset about the drugs behind my back. So my question is, am I foolish for giving him another chance? He's begging for another chance. This past week, he's been he's quit everything. He's going to, trying to go to therapy and trying to change his life around. So my question is. Is there hope for this relationship or am I just being foolish by giving him chances? There's nothing wrong 
I think, with most recreational drugs. If you can use them without abusing them. Doesn't sound like your ex-boyfriend was capable of using without abusing. Same goes for alcohol. Nothing wrong with enjoying a cocktail or two every once in a while. But you got to be moderate about it. You got to not abuse alcohol. Doesn't sound like your boyfriend, if he's binge drinking, is capable of enjoying alcohol, enjoying that drug, using that drug without abusing it, at least right now. Also, nothing wrong with cuckolding fantasies, nothing wrong with cross-dressing, nothing wrong with being bisexual. But just as your ex-boyfriend, and I think you should remain your ex-boyfriend, I'm just going to tip my hand there, spoiler alert, doesn't sound like he has a healthy relationship with drugs or alcohol, also doesn't have a healthy relationship with his desires. He was abused. He may be experiencing some deep-seated conflict He may be attributing some of his sexual interests or desires to that abuse. Perhaps there's a tie, something he needs to work on with a counselor, with a therapist to get to the bottom of, which is just a long way of saying not in good working order, your boyfriend, your ex-boyfriend, he should remain your ex-boyfriend, not in good working order, not healthy enough, not just to have a relationship with drugs or alcohol or cuckolding or other men, not healthy enough to have a relationship with you, not healthy enough to be in a relationship, doesn't deserve you. So he says he's going to therapy. He says he's quitting. Great. He should go to therapy and he should quit. That doesn't mean you have to take him back. It might not actually be helpful for you to take him back. You don't want him going through the motions at therapy or attempting to quit just to get you back because then as soon as he has you back, he loses all motivation or the motivations that he had to get therapy, to get help, and to quit using and abusing drugs and alcohol. So, yeah, if he quits, if he goes into therapy and gets to a healthier place, maybe you guys will run into each other in three or four or five years' time And you could pick back up then, but you shouldn't pick back up now. Hi, Dan. I am a woman in my 30s, and I've been with my partner for about six and a half years. I've always been the more open one, a little bit more kinky. He's maybe a bit more on the vanilla side. More recently, he's been requesting for some wandering time and some solo journeying, and I brought up maybe we should have some openness in our relationship. I've also brought up the possibility of him maybe seeing a dom. I have some friends in the industry. I think that would have been great for his control issues. Yeah, so with that context, he recently told me that he cheated on me by going onto a not-so-professional website, finding a dom, going to meet with the dom, doing sexual acts, and then getting an STD. And then sleeping with me the next day. So I feel pretty hurt in the situation as I was pretty open to him exploring as long as there was communication and boundaries. And this kind of just feels like he took a fat shit on that. I'm pretty into ending this relationship. But yeah, any tools, insights, and anything would be greatly appreciated. Tools. The tool you need to end this relationship is in your hand. It's the same tool you use to contact me, your phone. You can give him a call, tell him it's over. You can text him and tell him it's over. Insights? Well, 
yeah, sounds like you want to end this relationship. I encourage you to end this relationship. What the fuck was he thinking? What the fuck was he doing? You had communicated to him over the 6.5 years you were together that an open relationship was on the table, that ethical non-monogamy was on the table. And you thought maybe, given his control issues, and I don't necessarily think BDSM is a corrective for control issues, but you knew him well enough sexually and emotionally to think he might enjoy, vibe with, a pro-dom. And then he went and found one, sounds like a sketchy one, behind your back through a disreputable website, a pro-dom who had sexual contact with him, unsafe sexual contact with him. He got an, I don't need to tell you this. You just told me this. He got an STD and then had sex with you the very next day. Presumably he didn't realize he had an STD when he slept with you. Most people don't become symptomatic within 24 hours, but still he had unsafe sex and put you at risk needlessly, unnecessarily. And what does that say about him? Well, it says that he doesn't care about your health and safety. It says that he's selfish. It says that he's kind of stupid and could be evidence of a more toxic form of controlling behavior. He knew that you were open to an open relationship, but having an open relationship, agreeing to an open relationship would have opened the relationship for you too. And sounds like the evidence here suggests that he was only interested in it being open on his side, which is why he hid it from you. And Probably the only reason you found out about it was when you, I'm assuming, when you came down with that STD and he was your only sex partner. So it could have only come from him. And at that point, he had to confess. And if you hadn't come down with that STD, odds are good that he would have done this again. And we can infer at least the possibility that he's done this before and didn't contract an STD and so didn't have to tell you about it and so hasn't told you about it. (sighs) I think it's over. I think this is disqualifying behavior, deal breakers all around. And yet I have heard from so many people who stumbled into open relationships because somebody cheated, somebody got caught and it was a big, awful mess and sometimes an unnecessary mess. Sometimes a circumstance very like your own where one person was Raising the issue of opening the relationship with boundaries and mutual consent. And the other person did something very similar to what your boyfriend did and got caught for similar or other reasons and then renegotiated the terms of the relationship in a crisis stage and had to apologize and make amends and work their way back into the good graces and rear on the trust of their partner I've talked to so many people over the years whose partners cheated on them unnecessarily. Partners didn't have to cheat. They had said to their partners, look, if you ever want to have sex with somebody else, just talk to me about it in advance and be safe. And then their partner didn't talk to them about it in advance and wasn't, and perhaps also wasn't safe physically, in addition to not being safe emotionally, not protecting the relationship. And it's not always the case that those relationships ended because of that betrayal, that violation. I know people who've been in that circumstance who managed to stay together and are glad they stayed together. So I feel honor-bound to share that too, to give you that insight too, because for you or other people listening, people have come back from this circumstance and are grateful to still be in the relationships that they're in, despite a very similar event. Only you can assess if you think your boyfriend, you know him better than I do, you've been with him for 6.5 years, is capable 
of earning your trust. You're in a better position to judge whether his controlling behavior, whether his issues around control are fatal to the relationship and whether this cheating on you the way he did, putting your health at risk the way he did, is the last straw, is irredeemable. Not just can't come back from it and that he can't earn his way back into your good graces, that you can't trust him again, but that he's unlikely to change. That this is part of a pattern going back 6.5 years. And if it is, then I think you should be done. And it sounds like you are done. So back to that tool in your hand, the phone in your hand. Give him a call. Send him a text. Tell him it's over. Hey, Dan, 23-year-old male here calling from a large city in Canada with a classic savage love question of when to disclose. A little backstory on me. 2020 was a really shitty year for me. It was a year of loss. I lost my long-term girlfriend to a breakup. I lost my father to cancer. And I lost many of my friends to the pandemic. All of this grief has left me reeling from my losses, but now hopefully healing in order to move on. The most impactful of all of these losses was clearly my father's death. And as life goes on, I know he wouldn't want me to let life pass me by. And as such, I'm trying to find myself again and move on. One of the many ways in which I'm trying to move on for me is dating again because I lost my long-term girlfriend shortly before my father's health severely declined. It's about a, been about a year since we broke up, and I kind of want to feel like my old self again. And this is kind of where my question lies. I know that in order to heal, I need to spend a lot of time alone, finding myself, and learning to love myself again. But if I start getting serious with someone, I want them to understand that I may not be available as much as they'd like, because my healing journey is my number one priority. And this is kind of what I want to know. When should I bring up that my father died? I understand that it's, I could be unassuming and vague and tell someone that I'm healing from loss or trauma. But in general, just kind of my basic principle, I like to side on the side of giving people the whole story. So nothing is left to speculation or imagination. So there's clear communication. It's an important detail for me and something I think a prospective partner should know, but I just don't know when I should tell them. I don't want to tell them too early in the relationship and wig them out, but also give them way too much information, like obviously not a first date thing. But I also don't feel like I could hold this from someone who I'm getting serious with, and I don't know how to bring it up. I'm so sorry for your loss, for your father's death the end of the relationship that you were in, uh, the loss of friends during the pandemic. I'm hoping that your friends didn't die off during the pandemic, but maybe those relationships lost the thread during the pandemic. And fingers crossed, maybe you'll be able to reestablish some of those connections with your friends now that it looks like we're on the other side of the pandemic. The primary loss here, though, the one that you're struggling with about disclosure is the death of your dad. And my heart goes out to you. I lost my mom when I was in my very early 40s, more than a dozen years ago. And I still live with that grief. Uh, I miss her every day. Uh, I know people whose moms are still alive, people in their 50s, people in their 60s, whose mothers are still with them. 
And sometimes I feel these pangs of jealousy. I feel cheated out of my mother's advice, my mother's counsel, my mother's friendship over the last dozen years of my life. So, man, your grief, losing your dad at such a young age, like I said, my heart really goes out to you. You weren't asking for my sympathy or my support around that, but you have it. What you're asking me about was when to disclose. And I think that you are making a bigger problem of this than it needs to be. Facts about family tend to be something that people disclose or people discuss early on in a relationship. Someone that you begin to date may ask you about your family, about your parents, about whether you have siblings. So when you say that you don't want to hold this back, but you're not sure how to bring it up, it's going to come up in the natural course of dating and getting to know one another. What you want to be careful about is not overburdening someone expecting more from them emotionally, expecting them to comfort you or provide you with more emotional labor than you have a right to expect from someone that you're just starting to see. So I would encourage you to seek support, to perhaps join a grief support group, to reach out to other friends, maybe perhaps older friends who've lost their parents and have people that you can lean on at this time. But when it comes to someone that you're dating, share this fact. When the mutual swapping of information about families comes up early on in the dating process, share this fact. I recently lost my dad to cancer. The person that you share that fact with is very likely to say, as I said, as people tend to say, because what else is there to say? But it's still the right thing to say. And as someone who's lost a parent, it's the thing I wanted to hear. I'm so sorry for your loss. Then you can demonstrate to that person that you're not going to overburden them, that you're in good enough working order despite your grief to date by thanking them for saying that, thanking them for expressing their sorrow for your loss, and then continuing on with the conversation. Maybe you share a few facts about your dad, why you miss him, and then ask them a question about their family. Move on to other topics of conversation. You can Put your grief out there. You can have your loss and your grief acknowledged. What you don't want to do in that moment with someone you're just getting to know and just starting to date is wallow in your grief or overburden them with your grief or expect them to spend the rest of the night helping you work through or process your grief. That's not their role in your life right now. That's not a reasonable thing to expect from someone that you've just started to date. It would be unreasonable for someone that you've just started to date to expect you to withhold this information, this fact about where you're at emotionally, this fact about your family, it would be unreasonable for that person to react negatively to you sharing just the fact that you lost your dad to cancer recently and you're still grieving. If that person reacts badly to that, okay, don't continue to date that person. That person has, like I like to say when it comes to these disclosure questions, you've told them one thing about yourself, recently lost your dad. If they react inappropriately or negatively to that disclosure, well, they've told you basically everything that you need to know about them, which is they're not someone that you want to continue to date. So date two, date three, in my experience, which is a few decades ago, generally when people share these facts about their families, about their family composition, about their family histories, I would encourage you to disclose this fact at that point and then demonstrate to the person that you're seeing that you're not trapped in your grief, not so trapped in your grief that you can't 
or shouldn't be dating right now. And you demonstrate to that someone, not by pretending that your father is still alive, not by pretending that his loss isn't causing you grief, but by demonstrating to them that you're not paralyzed by that grief. Hi, Dan. I'm a 34-year-old male. I have a dilemma I was hoping you can help me with. My significant other and I have been dating for about 17 years now, since high school. I'm her only sexual partner she's had before, and she wants to have other partners. I was raised a one-person kind of guy. I want to give her what she wants. How do I do that without being so jealous? You say you were raised a one-person kind of guy. Well, we're all raised. I wanted to respond to that by saying, you know, we're all raised that way. All of us are raised to be one-person kind of people. Everyone. Everyone in an open relationship or a polyamorous relationship. Everyone with a DADT agreement. All those people we're raised to be one person kind of people. That's what I wanted to say at the top of my response to you. And I just said it. And then you called back to let me know that you were raised uh, by conservative Catholic parents in a pretty straight laced environment while your girlfriend's parents were swingers. So maybe your girlfriend wasn't raised to be a one person kind of girl, but I suspect that she still was. I suspect that the fact that her parents were swingers wasn't something that she was aware of while she was growing up. And she was bombarded with the same messages about monogamy, about love, meaning being in love, being in romantic love, meaning you don't want to sleep with anybody else, that you won't be attracted to anyone else. And that if you do find yourself attracted to someone else after you've fallen in love with one person, that means you're not in love with that person anymore. Otherwise, you couldn't feel attraction or desire for others. Yeah. Odds are if her parents were swingers, if her parents were straight swingers, they were socially monogamous, even if they weren't sexually monogamous and did nothing, sent their daughter no messages that might complicate or interfere with the monogamy, the one person person messages that she was getting from every television show, every movie, every book, and even by default, her own parents. All right. You can stay in this relationship with your girlfriend and remain a one-person kind of guy. It can be a one-sided open relationship. If the price of admission that you have to pay to stay in this relationship is allowing your girlfriend to sleep with other people, maybe there's a way that you can get there. Maybe there's someone that she could sleep with or some time she could sleep with somebody else or a way like a DADT arrangement that would allow for her to sleep with somebody else that you might be, well, not a thousand percent comfortable with, but more comfortable with than say her dating other people or sleeping with people in your own time zone or people that you know, or sleeping with people that she has some sort of ongoing connection with. Think about a way in which you could allow for this if you could allow for it. You don't have to. You're not obligated to. You can make remaining monogamous the price of admission that she has to pay to be with you. The risk there, of course, is that if she doesn't want to pay that price, that's going to be the end of the relationship. Sometimes the pay the price of admission thing is a game of chicken and somebody has to blink or jump out of the way first. Could be you. Could be her. Jealousy. Does Feeling jealous disqualify you from being in an open relationship. No. People in open relationships experience 
jealousy. People in monogamous relationships experience jealousy. As someone very publicly in an open relationship, I'm sometimes asked by people in monogamous relationships, don't you sometimes feel jealous? And my answer is always yes. And then I follow that up with a question, don't you sometimes feel jealous? Monogamy doesn't protect us from jealousy. So you've doubtless already experienced jealousy and there's some way in which you've learned to process it, work through it, handle it so that you could stay in this relationship, stay comfortable in this relationship, feel secure and prioritized by your girlfriend in this relationship. You can do those same things, those skills that you've developed processing and handling jealousy in a closed relationship. They apply in an open relationship. They become a little bit more crucial in the open relationship than in the closed relationship, but you've developed those muscles. So you can do this if you want to, if you choose to, if you're comfortable doing this, you could do this. And jealousy isn't always a bad thing. You know, jealousy reminds us why we desire our partners in the first place. Jealousy, feelings of jealousy, controlled feelings of jealousy can reignite our desire for our partners in long-term relationship, seeing them through someone else's eyes, whether the relationship is open or closed, you know, going out to a party or a bar with your long-term partner and seeing somebody else flirt with them or seeing them flirt with somebody else that can make you angry. If your jealousy is toxic or if your jealousy is fertile is constructive, that can just make you want to jump your partner's bones as soon as you get back home or as soon as you get to the car or as soon as you can drag them into the bathroom at the club. So don't tell yourself that just because you feel jealous, that means you can't do some form of openness. You've experienced jealousy already in a closed relationship and it didn't end your closed relationship. All that said, open relationships aren't for everyone. They can be more emotionally challenging than the alleged, reputed, lionized, security of a closed relationship. You're from people who got cheated on all the time on this show. There's not hundred percent security in a closed relationship. Of course you could get cheated on. So think about it. Think about what you might be capable of, but don't identify feelings of jealousy as disqualifying here. There may be other reasons why you can't do this. You require the emotional security or physical safety of a monogamous relationship. And that emotional security and physical safety is not hundred percent guaranteed. But maybe that makes it possible for you to be in a relationship, to feel safe and secure. And if that's what you require, you can demand it. You can make that the price of admission that she has to pay to be with you. The risk, of course, is if she's unwilling to pay that price, that demand could end this relationship. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. I am a non-binary person living in Australia, and I guess right now I'm an at-risk youth. I have an MRSA infection on the back of my left thigh, and I also had one last February um, of 2020 on my left shin. The first one was treated with a round of antibiotics and drained after it was confirmed to be MRSA, and this current one... I'm, I'm on antibiotics at the moment and I've been to the hospital twice the last week and I've had it drained. Um, my question is about whether or not I'm obliged to tell people that I have MRSA or that I carry it. I live with a few friends and my primary partner and we have an open relationship. I'm fairly sure my partner also is colonized with MRSA. We're being really slight careful at home and cleaning all the surfaces. 
uh, regularly, but I'm just worried about work. I work in a pub and also as a stripper. I'm currently losing income because I'm having to take the week off work um, of both of my jobs. But is that unethical for me to be working in the strip club? I obviously need to shave my legs and pussy a lot and that means I'm at risk of reinfection but I'm also concerned about one of my customers who is an elderly man and is pursuing me as a sugar baby. He's really sweet and I've definitely hit the jackpot with him based on his previous sugar baby relationship with an ex-stripper from my club but I'm just concerned because he is an elderly man and if I'm carrying MRSA I don't want to be putting him at risk. I feel like a bit of a biohazard right now and it's honestly pretty shit. Um, My brother who lives interstate is also about to undergo some quite aggressive chemotherapy and I'm nervous to visit him in case I infect him. I just don't know what to do. I don't know if I'm supposed to be telling people that I have this. I have told a lot of my friends and a lot of them didn't even know what MRSA is. I know that a lot of the population carries staph at all times and never have an infection and I'm not sure why I was reinfected. It could just be that my immune system is down. I've been pretty stressed and, you know, working in the club, it's pretty gross. Um, I should also note that we at my pub job and at the strippers, we're not, um, we're not obligated to wear masks at the moment because the coronavirus situation in Australia is under control enough that, you know, a lot of our venues are open and we aren't wearing masks out in the street in the city that I live in at the moment. Yeah, I'm just not really sure how I should navigate this. I want to be ethical, but I also don't want to lose my income because that's that's what I need to do <laughs> to make money. Joining me to help tackle this question because it is above my pay grade, Dr. Paul Pottinger, Professor of Medicine at the Division of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and Director of the Infectious Diseases Training Program at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Hey, Dr. Pottinger, how are you? I am good, and thank you so much for calling about this. It's a question that comes up a lot in our practice. I'm happy to answer any questions. So you see a lot of Australian strippers in your practice there in Washington. <laughs> I see the world through the lens of the juror more than the human. Not not as many Australian strippers as you might think, but plenty of staph aureus. Okay, so but let's zoom out for a second. What is MRSA? What is MRSA? How common is it? How serious is it? How contagious is it? Yeah, thank you. MRSA stands for methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus. It's quite a mouthful, and so... For short, we call it MRSA. MRSA is part of the Staph aureus family. Staph aureus is a bacteria. It's been with humans since antiquity. It lives on us. It lives in us. It's usually quite harmless. It's what we call a commensal, meaning it doesn't usually cause issues, but sometimes it does. And when Staph aureus goes from being an asymptomatic colonizer to becoming a pathogen, meaning causing infection, it can be a real issue. Usually it's skin and soft tissue infections, an abscess, for example, where somebody has shaved or groomed or where there's been some kind of trauma, a piercing, for example. And in some cases, actually, it can become very serious, invading the body, a bloodstream infection, sepsis. It can be a very serious situation. Here's the deal. (laughs) Most people do not have Staph aureus colonization, but some do. Some people just get it once. Some people have it all the time. Some people, something in between. So it's an issue for us. We've been dealing with this since the beginning of the antibiotic era. The new kid on the block over the last uh, 30 years or so is methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. What does it mean, methicillin-resistant? Well, methicillin is an antibiotic that we use to kill Staph aureus, and this particular flavor of Staph aureus, like the name says, it's resistant. We can no longer use our first-line drug of treatment to treat it. We don't have to use methicillin anymore. It's an old-fashioned antibiotic, but the name has stuck. So that's why we call it 
methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus, or MRSA, or as one of my students calls it, Mr. Saw. And so <laughs> this issue of uh, MRSA is something that has been a real problem. It's not an Australian issue. It's a global phenomenon. We deal with this a lot here where I live and work in Seattle, and it's something that we do have some experience with. Because although, again, MRSA is usually asymptomatic, it can sometimes cause infection, especially skin and soft tissue. By the way, when I said colonization, it can live on the skin, anywhere on the skin. It can live especially in the nose, the front of the nose where we have hair to keep out the dust. The more we look for Staphorus, the more we find it. The posterior, the back of the scrotum, we can find it in the mouth, we can find it in the vagina, under the arm. It likes us. It usually doesn't cause harm, but sometimes, as you have heard in this case, it really can. So we're all walking around covered in this shit, but only some of us have abscesses or infections that harm us? Probably a slight modification to what you said. Most of us do not have this colonization. Some do, okay. but we don't know who that is. You don't know. It's invisible. It's odorless. It's colorless. It's tasteless. It's harmless. It's an unknown. You don't know if you've got this or not until either somebody goes looking for it, somebody like me, pointy-headed ID guy who does a culture, or until somebody gets in trouble. And if somebody gets an infection, that's when they realize, holy cow, I think I may have been infected or colonized for quite some time without even knowing it. So someone who has an active infection or is being colonized, and we all agree that colonization, all of its forms, is bad. Um, what's the advice? What are they supposed to do to protect other people? Are they more infectious than someone who is colonized with MRSA but doesn't have an infection or an abscess? Or is it the same? Yeah, thank you. The way this germ spreads from person to person is by direct skin contact. Can you get it from an inanimate object, grabbing a payphone, public restroom handle? I mean, yes, you can. That's why it's good to wash your hands after you go to the lab. But generally speaking, the highest risk issue would be direct person-to-person spread through intimate contact. That could be sexual contact. It could be other intimate family contact as well. So here's the deal. If you know that you are having infections with these uh, germs, that's a highly contagious situation. We would want you to do good wound care, keep the wound covered, wash hands very aggressively, and don't let other people handle your your gauze as you take out the gauze from a a packed wound, the obvious things that everybody would want to do. But it can be Mm -hmm. more subtle than that. Unfortunately, because this germ can be tough to get rid of, yeah, it does spread within uh, uh, partners and close uh, family units, for example, either direct skin contact or sometimes inanimate objects. I do have patients who will share a razor blade. You know, it could be partners who share one razor for doing facial or body shaving. That's a great way to spread staph aureus. If um, you've got other inanimate objects that are shared, that can be an opportunity for change. So sometimes it's an issue of what we would call hygiene within a household or a workplace. In fact, your caller mentioned this, concerns with their uh, place of work, that it's not as sanitary as they'd like it to be. That is potentially a threat because if you have multiple people touching things, that's a good way for it to spread from person to person. Let's quickly talk about the, the caller's specific situation. She is a bartender and she needs to make money. She needs to live. We don't have universal basic income in the United States. I don't believe they have it in Australia. She's in a position where if she wants to eat, she has to go to work. Is it safe for her if she's very conscientious about 
keeping the wound covered when she's at work. Uh, I believe she said it was on her leg uh, and washing her hands. Uh, and are the glasses that she's handing over to customers a risk to her customers? Should she not be working until she gets the all clear from her docs? Yeah, thank you. So this person, in my opinion, should absolutely be gainfully employed. There's no reason to exclude them from the workplace. And we would not do that here in the United States from a public health perspective. What we do is exactly what this caller has asked about. We insist on excellent personal hygiene. So that means that there's great hand hygiene uh, before and after the wound is touched. And on a routine basis, you know, there are standards for hygiene within food services, and that includes bartending, that people should have clean hands when they're, when they're handling alcohol and glasses and stuff like that. This person acquired, almost certainly, probably acquired their infection during their line of work because they're constantly handling glasses that are being handed over from other people. I mentioned that Staph aureus lives in the nose. So somebody picks their nose, drinks a beer, slides the glass back to get washed. Unless this person is able to wash their hands, they probably acquired this from somebody in the line of work. That would be a likely way that this would happen. But that does not mean that they can't work. The opposite. I want this person to be gainfully employed whatever they choose to do, they just have to do it thoughtfully. And I want to return to this. I know we'll talk about this more, but I was so heartbroken to hear from this caller. They said they feel like a biohazard. They're worried about spreading this to others. And it's such a great uh, impulse that someone has that altruism, the ethics to not want to spread it to others. A brother with chemotherapy, a partner who is older. This is excellent uh, uh, initiative. I like that thoughtfulness. But I do not want them to feel guilty of the fact that they acquired it from somebody else. They should continue to do their activities. They just have to do it thoughtfully. And I have some specific ideas that they might consider doing, if that would be helpful. Yeah, yeah, please. So you know, the common thing is what everybody is told to do, which we could all, I know I could do a better job of. That is hand hygiene. The biggest opportunity is to have clean hands. For people in food services, there's a great emphasis on this. It's a threat because... If we wash with soap and water too much, it can be very damaging to the skin of our hands, right? People have all had that issue of dermatitis or inflammation of the skin from too much soap and water. There's an alternative, which is also quite excellent, which would be an alcohol-based hand rub, a gel, Purell-type gel. That's also very good at killing the staph aureus that happens to be on the hands. So if this person wants to wash hands, but they feel that it's too tough on their skin, they could embrace the idea of frequently using an emollient-based uh, hand rub, also a good way to get rid of the staph aureus. That may not be enough. This person may continue to uh, have trouble with recurrent skin and soft tissue infections related to shaving. They mentioned that. I think it's very classic for us in our practice to see people with leg issues uh, or pubic area issues related to the use of a razor. So there's several things to do. Number one, consider moving from a razor blade to a clipper. That's one thing that may be less of a threat why is shaving a problem? Because it traumatizes the skin. There are these microscopic abrasions when a razor goes across the skin. So that would be one thing to consider changing. But that doesn't deal with the issue of Staph aureus still on the body. So there are cases where we will try something called decolonization. We try to get rid of the staph from the body with a concerted effort using medicated soap and antibiotic ointment to the nose. No one's sure exactly what the best way is to do this, but the way it basically looks is that for about a week out of the month, somebody would apply a small amount of antibiotic ointment to the front of the nose where the hair is. And during that week, they would also take an antibiotic soap shower. This is something called chlorhexidine. The common brand name in the United States is Hibiclens, but there are other brands. It's 4% CHG soap. Get in the shower, 
get wet and then lather up with the soap. Everywhere on the body except the eyes. It can sting the eyes. We do keep it out of the eyes. But everywhere else, under the arms, between the legs, behind the ears, as they say. And then stand there, naked, wet, lathered up for five minutes to allow the soap to soak in and give a metered dose. Then rinse off, pat dry with a clean towel. And do that again, again, every day for that week that they're doing the nasal treatment. That has helped a lot of my patients. In some cases, it's not enough. We may, in some cases, have to try to re-decolonize. I do have some patients, I'll advise them to do this one week out of the month for three months in a row. But they should understand mm-hmm. that they are not immune to staph aureus. They can always reacquire it. So she's going to need to make sure her boyfriend gets treated at the same time, and she's going to have to go into work and put her foot down and insist that there's better hygiene practices at work so that she's not getting treated herself and then reinfected by the boyfriend or reinfected in the workplace. This is this is true for so many things. If you think about sexually transmitted infections, we always treat the partner, right? So we do not think of MRSA as a true STI, but it can be. So I always treat families or at least intimate partners, do it together. By the way, if people don't have a shower, they prefer to take a bath. That's fine. We can use chlorinated water instead. Take a bath together. Fill a tub uh, with water and then put in a half cup of household bleach. That's what you're supposed to get when you go to the YMCA. And just soak in that for half an hour at a time. Do that again, as I mentioned, once a day for, for a week. That's another option too. The colleague's last concern was she has an, there's an elderly man, a client who's interested in a sugar baby relationship, which would probably result in some skin to skin contact with this elderly client. It, are the elderly at greater risk if they contract MRSA for infection or death? Elderly people are at greater risk of bad outcomes if they acquire MRSA. That's true for people of any age if they have a reduced immune system. This caller has a brother about to go through chemotherapy. I'm concerned about both of those uh, people in her life, in their life, excuse me. And so I think what they can do is disclose this and deal with it head on. This was a question that came from the caller. Should they tell, are they ethically or legally obligated to tell their partners about this? Well, I don't know about the legal requirements in Down and Oz, but I think the thing to do for people that they care about, absolutely talk about it. They should not be stigmatizing. They should be dealt with out and out front. And I think they should say, look, I've had this issue of MRSA. I'm struggling with it. I'm trying to get rid of it. And I would invite you to join me and do the same thing because those people really are, Dan, at increased risk of having a bad outcome if they do happen to catch MRSA. Even if it starts asymptomatic, it can become an aggressive problem. And I would hope that they would do this together openly, just like any other health issue that they would uh, share as intimate partners or family members. We talked about fact that you think it's fine for her to continue to work as a bartender. If there's skin-to-skin contact where she's stripping, if she's giving lap dances, if it's the kind of strip club where patrons stuff dollar bills into G-strings or are allowed to have some contact, hopefully with the stripper's consent, uh, should she stop stripping for now? Should she pick up some more bartending shifts and skip the stripping until she's in the until she's clear? That is an option. The bigger concern to me, rather than this short-term issue of having a wound, and by the way, this person has chosen to stop that particular part of their income stream because they're dealing with an active wound. That's the right thing to do. I'm really worried more about their risk of reacquiring this from patrons over the over time. And in all sincerity, I have worked uh, with people in similar situations over time. I do have some people who will actually continuously, preemptively, attempt to decolonize themselves with medicated soap, with medicated 
nasal ointment on a periodic basis. For a lot of people, it's one week out of the month. Some people do it every other month. No one knows what the best way is to do this, but I think this person should go into their work experience eyes wide open, knowing that this is probably how they acquired it. This is how they are likely to reacquire it. So long as they are diligent with hand hygiene, considering the possibility of decolonization periodically, I would not advise them to change their income stream. But this is just a fact of their particular line of work. So someone who's been colonized, someone who's uh, had an active infection, is that because we're all exposed to this relatively routinely, but not all of us are colonized, not all of us get infected. Is someone who's been infected once, are they just more likely to be infected in the future? Are they susceptible in a way that not at all the case? Not in all cases. So we, there are certain people who are very much at risk of getting serious infections due to an innate immunosuppression disorder of their immune system that they don't know about, but that's exceptional. For most people, it is something that just happens because this germ has been around and evolved with us over millions of years. It loves our skin. It is happy to be on us. And again, remember, it's not in the bacteria's best interest to cause infection. When that happens, we take antibiotics and kill it. It wants to be stealthy. It wants to be quiet in the background. For most people who are colonized, uh, it is indeed asymptomatic. And to answer your question explicitly, we don't routinely even screen for this, at least on a general population basis. So I would say there's, again, those two flavors of Staph aureus, regular Staph aureus, old school Staph, and the new flavor, MRSA. They're both bad. What makes the MRSA issue worse is that if you do happen to get a true infection, it's more challenging to treat. It tends to cause more skin infections, and it actually has certain pathogenicity features that make it cause more pus, more scarring. It's a, it is a big bowl of bad. People should not panic about this. It has been with us since our evolution, and I think it always will be. But I do think that if someone has an issue with skin and soft tissue infection, whether it's related to their employment, their athletic work, their social life, that they should talk with their physician about it. They may benefit from consideration of decolonization. We endorse decolonization in all its many forms. Dr. Paul Pottinger, professor of medicine at the Division of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. What to do, Dan? African American, cisgendered, queer friendly, so I am led to believe. Male representing here who prefers dating by women. Here's the thing I've noticed how much my partners do not have any game. If there is any cultivation of sex in my relationships, it is dependent upon my skill set. This often leaves me feeling like I'm being put into a small box where the hypersexual black male trope resides. Some may see this as being lucky, but I don't. When I refer to game, I'm referring to a complex skill set designed to entice people to want to fuck you or the skill set that extends the foreplay embedded into relationship dynamics that makes sex more accessible to people in the relationship. This includes flirtatious touching and teasing, investing time and interest, seductive behavior, skillfully using distance and mixed company to invoke sexual tension, which is hard to do if your partner is always up underneath you and feels like distance is a front to their relationship security. It feels like I am primarily responsible for building the ship, plotting its course, and then being its captain. It is exhausting in that I would like to be in a relationship with women who have a similar skill set and who are willing to practice this skill set and take chances at developing it without sulking about it. Perhaps I've been around those women and have ignored them, interrupted them, disrespected them, etc. I could have a shitty blind spot that keeps me from experiencing what I'm looking for. 
Maybe the blind spot is a bigoted one. I've considered this to be a personal problem with myself, but I've also considered to what degree cultural socialization of women could be a part of this too. Are women not encouraged to develop this skill set? When my partners have enough courage to initiate communicating their desires of sex, it is abrupt and very dictatorial. I'm horny. I want to fuck. Do you want to fuck? Why haven't we fucked yet? All that rhetoric that I hear from my partners gives me trepidation because it still has embedded in it the expectations that it is my responsibility to do something about it alone. While my partners passively receive me facilitating and maintaining these dynamics. This is very unsexy to me, and honestly, I get a little contemptuous about it. Is my experience common? Am I getting in the way with my blind spots? Am I being unreasonable? How do I change myself so that I can change this non-preferred outcome? Let's talk about it. So the problem here is that you end up being the initiator in all your relationships, that yep. you initiate first contact, that you end up, if a relationship develops, being the one who's expected to initiate sex. And then when you hang back and wait for them to initiate, what you get from them is kind of they're annoyed that they're having to initiate. Yes, absolutely. All right. And you absolutely. feel that the expectation that you always be the initiator, as you say, plays into this trope of the hypersexual black male. Yes, very much so. And yet this is a problem so. in all of your relationships in every relationship that you've had, there has been this issue. It, yes, it has been this issue. And this is where I was trying to ask you about whether I had a big blind side, because there is this issue of this trope of the hypersexual black man, but I also am cis heterosexual and mm -hmm. you know, the idea if it's in my head that, women are socialized into being passive or not, or if this is just a prejudice that I have. And I continue to select the same types of people to be in relationships with. And so I'm trying to really figure out what is it that I can do, not necessarily tell my partners to do, but what I can do in order to um, have a different type of sexual experience. So you don't want to be in charge, so you want to figure out what to tell your partners to do around making you feel like you're not always in charge, but you're still then ordering them around. I think you need to get a little bit further upstream, which is in the selection of partners. Okay. Rather than once you have a partner trying to re-engineer the relationship. Uh-huh. And if this is always the case that you never wind up with women who are sexually aggressive, with women who initiate, well, my hunch then is you're the common denominator and you may be falling into this trap and are likely to fall into this trap, not just as a, not primarily, I think as a black male, but as a male, because in opposite sex relationships, at least at the start, men are expected uh -huh. to be the aggressors to, to, to at least approach. And I'm curious when you approach women and you encounter a woman who's more sexually aggressive, if that's a turnoff for you, Consciously or subconsciously, have you, you know, on a night when you're out meeting many women, passed over women who met your initial approach with some forward or sexually aggressive behavior in favor of women where you had to keep pursuing, where you were still, mm -hmm. you know, leaning forward, where you were the aggressor, where you were on the hunt? Because I, I just can't imagine. You sound like a really attractive man and does sound like you've got game. I can't imagine that you've never approached a woman who was like, fuck yeah, and coming at you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, I would say it's rare 
it's it's rare. I mean, th- that would be somewhat of a unicorn um, for me. And maybe it's me falling into the trap and not pursuing that those roles long enough for some of those women. I just, dude, I just don't have time for okay. it because it it it, it, it seems it seems. You know, I'm in the age range where that that seems a little too playground-ish, you know? To to wait for someone to pursue you? No, to, to continue to play out the roles and to, until the, the, the story, you know, people who follow the story too much. So, you know, I kind of get tired of the pursuit. I don't mind the initiation. Mm-hmm. But it just kind of draws out and, and, it, and it feels like I'm having to fulfill script lines so to speak. And it, and it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like a collaborative experience. It just feels like one where we're cooperating, but not collaborating. I'm sure a lot of women out there who are listening are going to have thoughts. And I encourage uh, women out there listening who have thoughts to call in and share. But what I want to uh-huh. say is you've got to get over the hurdle in heterosexual land that the man initiates. Okay. The man pays for, you know, the first date. There's all these kind of gendered expectations and mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of women out there who just want a gesture toward those gendered expectations being mm-hmm. met, to those expectations being met, that, that you approach first, which then allows them to, to approach you. But you're always going to be, particularly in a place like Texas, I think, where you said you live, in the position of having to make that first approach because that's the expectation. Even women who are sexually aggressive are going to want, mm-hmm. many of them, are going to want to see you as the male make mm-hmm. the first move. Now, I'd like to live mm-hmm. in a world where everybody can make the first move. We do live in a world where there are dating apps where you can literally hang out a shingle that says, tired of being the aggressor, looking for sexually aggressive women. <laughs> and you can cut the like formalities of having to make the first move of all these gendered expectations. If you're out in a, if you're going to bars or clubs to meet women, you can cut that all out. And just say, this is what I want. I want to be pursued for a change. And you will get those women who have that in them. Those same women who have it in them to be the aggressor, to to pursue, to hunt. Those same women, when they're out in a bar, may not feel like they can approach, make the first move in a bar. Right. Because eyes are on them. Because they might be judged or shamed. They might be judged or shamed, slut-shamed by their friends. You know, when we talk about slut shaming, we're always talking about men slut shaming women. There's a lot of slut shaming of women by women. And a sexually aggressive woman who's out with her friends may feel too self-conscious to walk up to you and say, wanna fuck, or whatever it is you'd like to hear. Yeah. Or she may not be out of the closet on whether or not she likes black men. That's a thing. So I understand. (laughs) Yeah, I understand that too. It makes a lot of sense, Dan. Yeah. If you do find yourself in another relationship that's similar to your previous relationships where you're the initiator and you're the aggressor, don't be uh-huh. passive aggressive about wanting to, you know, encourage your girlfriend at that point to initiate. Say to her, don't like okay. hang back, don't wait, don't starve her out until she's annoyed and wondering if maybe you've lost interest, wondering if there's something wrong. And then she says things like, are we going to fuck or what? What you want to say to her is... <laughs> it's your turn to initiate. I've been doing a lot of initiating. I'd like to feel desired, desirable. And so I'm just going to hang back for a little bit. Know that I want it. I want it. You tell me when, and it'll happen. Make it playful rather than 
sulking about it rather than being manipulative, be communicative. Oh. Be so I have to go down to uh, Walmart and get my user word starter kit. <laughs> I don't know if they sell Dan Savage use your word starter kits at Walmarts in Texas, but maybe. Uh, but you should definitely um, use not. your words. And any, you know, so many conflicts in relationships around sex, around initiation, around what's on the menu. When people want to talk about those things, they sort of just go to a tense place of dissatisfaction and annoyance and, and negotiation. Mm -hmm. And it can really help to go to a playful space where I'd really like mm -hmm. to see more of this happening. Let's figure out a way to make that an erotic game as opposed to an erotic stalemate or an erotic conflict. And so mm. I'd like to feel wanted. I'd like to, for you to take a, a turn as the initiator. So surprise me. And then be joyful about Rightful. it when they initiate. And if the first couple, you know, if she's bad at initiating at first, if her way of initiating at first is like, why haven't we fucked? You might have to accept that. You might have to, to take that and then encourage her mm -hmm. to initiate in a friendlier, more playful way. Mm -hmm. Good luck. I then. Great talking with you. All right. Have a good one, Dan. Peace. Bye. Hey, Dan, sorry for the explicitness of this question, but I was recently with a man and he was in quite into having me um, um, gag on his cock, I guess, during which I, I felt myself kind of vomiting, but I, I swallowed it back down. I didn't puke anywhere. But later that night when I was at home sleeping by myself, I kind of was feeling the same sensation of having to vomit. But I didn't, but it, it kind of went on for a number of hours through the through the night. So I'm just wondering, is this normal and is there any way to avoid it happening? The reason you felt pukey so long after giving this guy this gagging, retching, choking blowjob is that he was battering the back of your throat, your soft palate, your tonsils with his dick and you could feel it hours later. Your throat was a little sore, perhaps a little bruised and opened up. And so you still felt that kind of the, the gag reflex. You felt the gag reflex. He was inducing your gag reflex for his pleasure. He likes to feel somebody gag and ratch on his dick. You were really into how into it he was and you enjoyed it. And then he went home with his dick and his dick felt fine or he stayed home and he went over to his house to blow him. But you went home with your battered throat and it took a while for your throat to recover. Not that any long-term damage is done by this kind of a blowjob, by a rough blowjob, but you're going to feel it hours later. You felt it when his dick was in your throat. You felt it. It induced your gag reflex. You felt the lingering after effects of the rough blowjob you gave, of the face fucking you took, and it induced in a lingering way, in a small way, the gag reflex, that same gag reflex. And it left you feeling a little pukey afterwards in the same way that a good ass fucking leaves you feeling a little tender and sore and open afterwards, hours later. It's not a mystery. What is a mystery? What I find so interesting about your question is how different now a good blowjob is for, for, for many people. It used to be that people without gag reflex had bragging rights and a great blowjob was a deep throat blowjob and no gagging and just face fucking and someone really being able to take your whole dick. Now everybody, maybe porn is to blame, maybe the whole like craze for 
choking is to blame. People want, a lot of people who get blowjobs want to see that their dick is so big and so awesome and so massive that even someone who's a cocksucker and a really good one can't take their dick without gagging or retching. And people are turned on by inducing someone's gag reflex, by seeing someone choke on their dick and have to fight to hold their lunch down. Not my cup of tea. I don't like to feel somebody puking up their lunch around my dick, even if they manage to swallow it back down quickly without it landing in my lap. But to each his own. And I wouldn't hesitate if I were you, caller, if you enjoyed blowing that guy and he wants you to blow him again and you want to blow him again in the exact same way. Don't worry about those lingering after effects. Your throat, like your ass, will bounce back after that fucking you may feel, though, if you felt very pukey while you were giving that blowjob, you may feel a little pukey after, for some hours after, but you will recover. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old straight woman from North Carolina. My question for you is, is it normal? Well, I know there's no normal, but is it average for someone to have to think about porn to come. I'm married. I've been married for four years. My husband and I have like an amazing sex life. He goes down on me. I always come. It's great. But I always have to like think of porn that I've watched or picture it or whatever to be able to get off. And I'm just wondering like, is that normal for women? Do like most women have to do that? Is it because I've rotted my brain? from watching porn for the last like 20 years. Like I just would love to know. Is it normal? Is it average? No and no, most likely. I think it's really common though. And for the reasons that you cite, a lot of people grow up, particularly young people have grown up watching a lot of porn and it can carve a deep groove into your erotic imagination. And there can be kind of go-to images or tape loops in your head that you know, get you there. And so you, go there. Sometimes in an effort to, you know, bring yourself home so your partner doesn't drown while eating your pussy or die down there or you don't overstay your welcome. That said, there's an easy way to not disappear into your own head. If your partner, and he sounds like a great guy, he sounds like a good fuck, eats your pussy, get a lot of calls from women with partners who don't eat their pussies. If he's game and if he knows this and if he grew up watching a lot of porn too, you should be able to tell him that you know, when I'm getting close, I sometimes start to, you know, I run this loop in my head and makes me feel like I've zoomed away from you. And is there a way that we can at that moment connect? Now he's busy eating your pussy, so he can't dirty talk with you, but he can listen. His ears aren't occupied and he can ask you a couple of questions and talk back in about what it is that you're thinking about. And maybe then base, you know, with the porn that you've watched, that's you know these images that are stuck in your head as the base, the two of you together can begin to spin out some fantasies where the porn may have been the inspiration, but what you two then talk up together, spin out together, improvise around together, it becomes yours and becomes something that you two created together and share. But it requires your partner to be the sort of person who knows that as the cliche puts it, the largest sex organ is between the ears. And a lot of us during sex are thinking about not necessarily 
our partners, but also enjoying our partners, enjoying the sensations they're providing, sometimes pinging back and forth. And if you're with somebody that you can vocalize about, you know, the shit that's going on in your head, that can be at once very affirming, make you feel connected, even at those moments when you're going to some of those images or moments in porn that really work for you. And then if you can build on it together, then it's not you abandoning your partner while he eats your pussy to disappear into some porn. It's porn inspired you and your partner to greater heights of dirty talk and, and a stronger connection. And maybe with the inspiration of some of the porn scenarios that you share with him while he's eating your pussy, you guys will come up with some scenarios of your own that then instead of thinking about, you'll be able to actually do. You'll be able to spin out fantasies that then you realize with your partner. And then there's a definite benefit payoff, something in it for him. If he is secure and gracious enough for, to allow for something that he's probably also done and maybe doing himself while you're blowing him, which is going to some of these images, mental images, tape loops, perhaps porn inspired that he knows gets him there. Well, you guys can, if you can talk about it, if you can share, if you can dirty talk together, you can get there together. All right, before we get to listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Big Apple Mave tweets, listening to episode 766 of the Savage Lovecast and wishing for an international day of boycotting racist, misogynist, and transphobic family members. Imagine if people worldwide said enough and turned their backs on the ignorance and assholery that persists. Hashtag fuck them. I include homophobic family members on that list and anti-vaxxers and people who are rude to waiters. And then I'd wonder why every day can't be turned your back on ignorance and assholery day. Yaps tweets. In response to the gifts arm race caller, I recommend setting a gift budget. Both buy each other gifts at the top end of the agreed upon budget for the event. That's what we do. It helps prevent hard feelings and gift budget awkwardness. And finally, Gold Dave Berg tweets, can you help me unpack why the intro to your last Savage Lovecast bothered me so much, Dan? I am a cis-het male who sometimes dabbles in queer land and has always considered myself an ally. Your intro made me feel alienated and gate-kept out of pride. Am I not welcome? Of course you are welcome at Pride. Think of the rapturous reception that P-Flag parents have always received at Pride. Think of the reception Kamala Harris received at Pride when she was running for president. Saying Pride isn't about you doesn't mean it's not for you. We want straight people to see us and to see that we are not ashamed and not hiding. And we want straight people who hate us to see that not all straight people do. So we want our straight allies, our friends, our parents, our neighbors, politicians, at Pride. The only gatekeeping I was doing, and I will admit to doing a little gatekeeping here, was around that plus sign at the end of LGBTQ+. It doesn't mean all points along the gender and sexuality spectrum. I'm not sure what it does mean. I'm not sure what that plus sign covers that queer does not. But I know it doesn't mean that. It can't mean that. Because if there's no distinction that can be made between queer and not queer, then queer means nothing. And as a queer, I gotta say, it means something. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast, and now your response calls. Hi, Dan. I am a nurse practitioner calling from California concerning the man who was talking to you about possibly using saline injections to increase the size of his scrotum, possibly doing 
uh, injections into the abdomen. And I just want to say that from a medical point of view, those are highly inadvisable because injecting something into your abdomen, should you inject some bacteria and you didn't use exactly very clean technique, which you kind of need to know what you're doing in order to do, you could cause a very, very serious, even life-threatening infection in the abdomen area called the peritoneum. And then in the scrotal area, if you don't know what you're doing, you might be injecting into a nerve, which would be very, very painful and possibly damaging. It could go well. I just worry, I know, could go so, so wrong. This is a response call for the caller who was calling in about her bigoted father and her difficulty with um, navigating dating within those circumstances. And I just needed to address the nonchalance with which this idea of cutting out your family is thrown around, often on this show. And as somebody who, at a relatively young age, had to make the hard decision to cut out both of their parents, it's extremely painful and traumatizing to have to make that kind of decision. And I feel like I've had partners and people who don't have that kind of perspective approach the subject with a blasé kind of support. Like, yeah, I fully support cutting out toxic family members. But, you know, being alone in the world (laughs) in that way, and I mean, I'm not alone. I'm very well surrounded. I'm, I'm very lucky for the chosen family I have in my life. But it's like the hardest thing I've ever had to do is cut out my mother because of her toxicity. And I feel like this situation with this caller, I understand that bigotry is unacceptable and she doesn't have to stand for it. But there are ways that she can... I'm just saying that starkness is not necessarily necessary in this case, or at least there are steps before that that hard call. And I just think that if you don't have the perspective of what it means to actually have to cut out your family members and your parents especially, I mean, that's some painful shit. That's some really traumatic shit. And if you like the nonchalance around that subject matter, something has to be said about it. Hey, Dan and Nancy. Uh, this is a response to the caller in episode 766 about gift giving. As a man that has been married uh, and with my partner for 10 years, you know, we're not all really good at gift giving. And I think you're being a little too hard on your partner. And I just think that maybe we can have a talk about it or just kind of accept what comes to you because any gift is a good gift. And one of my things that I like to say is the best things in life aren't things. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment. We love your comments. And email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Bonus tweet, Noel tweets, Savage Lovecast sack lunch is the best thing ever at Fake Dan Savage at all. This was a brilliant idea. Many thanks. If you would like to be able to participate in our sack lunch, it's our monthly online hangout for Magnum subscribers only. You got to subscribe to the Magnum at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, no ads, more guests, and the monthly sack lunch hangout. If you're already a Magnum subscriber and you want to turn someone else on to the benefits of Magnum sub Savage Lovecast, you can gift it at savagelovecast.com. Just go to the website and click on gift. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Dr. Paul Pottinger on Twitter at Paul Pottinger MD. 
The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the tech savvy at-risk youth and Nancy, we'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. 